Good morning. Today we are going to be discussing the Parshios, again the double Parsha of Behar and Bechukosai. We are just a couple of weeks before Shavuos, which I know is super exciting time for everyone. So uh, God willing, this class can also serve as a little preparation for that as well. Parshios Behar Bechukosai, the title for today's class is Healthy Capitalism. This month, the month of ER, is sponsored by the Slomiansky family in loving memory of Daniel ben Ariyaku Halivi Sichrono Vivracha. We wish that his neshama should have an aliyah, and together with his family, we pray for that, and that for the merits of our Torah study to be for the benefit of his neshama. This week's class is also dedicated in honor of the Pidyon Haben of David Menashe, David Menashe, Manucheri, Mazel Tov. That Pidyon Haben actually took place last night. Uh, this is a happy occasion. I get to see my mother in person today. So for those of you who are missing online, you can come to the yeshiva and visit with her and Rebetzin Begelman. So Mazel Tov and that Pidyon Haben. Pidyon Haben is a rare but tremendously happy celebration. One brief word about a Pidyon Haben is that it teaches us the concept of recognizing that our children are truly gifts from Hashem meant to be dedicated to his service. More on that another time. Again, another dedication in honor of another Pidyon Aben of Matan Shmuel Goldberg, Mason Sam Goldberg, Mazel Tov. So in celebrating these happy occasions, I know that we all join together with the families and appreciate this tremendous gift from Hashem and opportunity to do this mitzvah, which again is pretty rare. Mazel tov to them. And again, a special <clears throat> alias neshama to Daniel ben Arya Yaakov Halevi. Throughout history, and again, the title of the class is Healthy Capitalism. Throughout history, mankind has struggled, struggled mightily to build societies containing long-term stable economies. Dictatorships of all types, which of course includes the employing of idolatry or other various forms of religion, plus communism and socialism, and various iterations of democracies have spanned the millennia of human existence. All of these systems of governance have sought economic security, and specifically for their countries and for their citizens, albeit perhaps in varying degrees of wealth, but right? sometimes there was a very clear caste system where the people towards the top by definition would have more wealth. Nonetheless, all of these various governments have employed different methods of cultivating and trying to maintain their economies on a long-term basis. One of the main strategic approaches to developing economies that has formally developed since around the 16th century is capitalism. Here is a dictionary definition of capitalism. Capitalism is an economic system characterized by private or corporate ownership of capital goods by investments that are determined by private decision and by prices, production, and a distribution of goods that are determined mainly by competition in a quote unquote free market. So the idea of capitalism is obviously some degree of private corporate ownership, private decisions, free market, and of course, all of this can have a wide interpretation. Nonetheless, 
it is clear that philosophically, capitalism consists of a large degree of freedom in the trading of goods or properties in their societies. Let us now contrast capitalism with socialism. We will then ask ourselves which system more closely resembles the Torah's prescription of economics for the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael, which is a large part of what Parshas Bahar is about. Socialism, a, dic a dictionary definition, and there's a few because it's a little bit more diverse in its interpretation, but socialism is any of various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods. Basically, government is very involved in the production and distribution of goods. That's like a nutshell version of that. Or number two, a system or society or group living in which there is zero private property, no private property whatsoever. That is one of the dictionary definitions of socialism. Quite interesting. Number three is a stage of society in Marxist theory transitional between capitalism and communism and distinguished by unequal distribution of goods and pay according to work done. So as we see, defining socialism is even more complex uh, despite the fact that capitalism is also pretty broad ranging. Okay, nevertheless, philosophically, socialism clearly puts limits on the idea of private ownership and freedom of trade among its citizens. History is still being written as to the success of socialism versus capitalism in terms of developing long-term stable economies, providing for financial security for its adherents. Arguments continue to emerge for varying forms of both philosophies. A current ongoing problem, even in the most stable and financially sound countries today, is the providing of adequate health care for all its constituents, as well as widely varying economic classes of people. So pretty much no matter where you look around the world, whether it comes to socialism or capitalism, there are certain common problems. Not great healthcare in many situations, maybe not adequate for some people, <clears throat> maybe even not close to adequate. And the fact that there's a tremendous division of classes in many countries, even with, you know, philosophies that are varying within capitalism and socialism. So simply put, even the best societies have the very wealthy and the very poor. Obviously, these issues drive tremendous political strife and angst, not to mention real violence among its citizens. My personal opinion is that most of the fighting of the political parties in these United States of America is driven by people's concern for their personal finances and security. This is nothing new as we all know the famous expression, money makes the world go round. Now, apparently the full quotation, by the way, of that is money makes the world go round. However, happiness greases the axle. So at least in this quotation, there is some uh, attention paid to what happiness is supposed to be. And the quotation continues without this lubricant of happiness, life will cease. Apparently, that's Paul Van Demir. I don't know how to pronounce the last name exactly. The fact is that every person in the world that ever existed needs to eat, to drink, to have shelter, and a way to take care of their physical health. In almost all societies, this takes money. Thus, the overarching critical question is, what is the healthiest approach to economics 
that will provide for financial stability and security for all people so that everybody can take care of their eating, drinking, shelter, and physical well-being. In this week's Torah reading in Parshas Bahar, the Torah clearly advocates for the Jewish people to engage in free trade of all properties with very few limitations. Now we're gonna do a brief summary. And of course, we're gonna see that the Torah is definitely a proponent of capitalism. But as the title suggests, we're gonna look for the Torah's help so that we can have a healthy capitalism. It should be mentioned at this point that the idea that the Torah speaks to monetary issues needs to be internalized. Unfortunately, many people think of religion as involving ritual and prayer and other forms of you know, non-monetary activities or subjects, but the reality is that the Torah speaks very clearly on the issues of money and economics. And also this is in no way a political commentary of any kind about any society. We're just looking for what's the Torah's definition for uh, economics that provides for long-term economic stability. Now, a great quote that I heard today from my friend Joseph Rackman from his father, um, Rabbi Emmanuel Rackman, may he rest in peace, is that communism causes man to oppress man. Capitalism does the reverse. Yeah, that's the same thing. So obviously the point of this quote is that there is inequity in all systems. So now we're going to the Torah for hopefully some solutions. Here is a brief summary of the rules of economics as described in our parsha, with some additional points that are based on the Gemara, Talmud, and some later halachic sources. Uh, towards the end, we're gonna discuss perhaps a significant number of Ramban because people may not be familiar that these are actual rules of Jewish society. Most of the verses containing these laws are our parsha, Parsha's Bahar, chapter 25, sentences one, through 54. Here we go. Every Jew with ancestral lands, that means land that was inherited when the land of Israel was first taken and then eventually bequeathed to descendants. Every Jew with these ancestral lands should not sell their lands unless compelled by economic need. Really not supposed to sell your ancestral land to various Israel. Very interesting. If there, if there is an economic need, then yes, it is allowed. Ancestral lands in Eretz Israel may never be sold permanently, meaning they are necessarily returned to their original owner in the Jubilee year, which we call Yovel, which is every 50th year when we're observing the Yovel cycle. A Jew, this is just a general rule, a Jew may not overcharge or underpay for most common commodities. Real estate is another law that maybe we'll get to at the end. It's very interesting. Real estate is a different category in terms of overcharging and underpaying. But for most common commodities, there is absolutely no overcharging or underpaying. That means it's a prohibition both on the seller and on the buyer. If it's spoken out clearly, that can have a different rule, meaning that it's, if it's clearly um, spoken in the time of the sale, what the fair price is and what's being charged, that can be another category. But we're gonna try not to get too nitty gritty. An original owner or his relative of these ancestral lands has the opportunity to redeem his land after two years from the time of the sale, even before the Jubilee year. Another law, this is not about ancestral land, this is about homes, houses that are sold 
also have some redemption rights, meaning even if they're not on ancestral lands, with some differing rules, depending on if they are part of a walled city or unwalled cities. Interesting category in the Torah. Another general rule, a Jew who is impoverished, who therefore sells himself as a slave, may be redeemed at any point, but if he is not redeemed, he, no matter what, will necessarily go free in the Jubilee year. Another rule, houses of Levites, Levite houses, which are in Levite cities, always have redemption rights. They can be redeemed forever. Number, next one. Jews are obligated to prevent a fellow Jew from economic failure. It's a very interesting rule. We have a literal obligation to pay attention to when a Jew might be failing financially and to reach out to prevent that failing, that bankruptcy, if you will, from happening. Lastly, that we're gonna discuss right now, Jews are obligated to lend fellow Jews money with zero interest charges. Now, many of these laws are fascinating, but difficult to understand, especially through the lens of modern capitalism. Why may we not sell our inheritance lands permanently? Why are we allowed to sell them for up to 49 years, but also allowed to almost immediately redeem them after two years? So either don't sell them, sell them, don't have the ability to redeem them, what's with 49 years? Also, why am I obligated to prevent a Jew from economic failure? Why am I not allowed to lend a fellow Jew money with interest charges, right? All of these don't really make sense in modern capitalism, where the basic theory is, it's my money, I get to do what I want with my money. Well, the Torah apparently has a lot to say about our money, despite the fact that the Torah is really advocating a lot of free trade. Before addressing these questions relating to Torah prescribed economics, let us now recognize from a literary point of view where these laws exist in the Torah, where they are placed, and the correlation between these laws and the general rules of Shemitah and Yovel. Right? So Paishas Bahar begins with the requirement with which most of us are familiar that the land of Israel must have a year of rest every seventh year. Wouldn't it be nice if this was a norm in our work lives as well? But even though some people have adopted sabbatical years in some industries, that's pretty much a thing by the wayside, I think. But it is true by land. This means that in the seventh year, there can be no plowing and planting. Additionally, the 50th year may also not be plowed or planted. Now, that's actually an argument in the Talmud, but the bottom line is we rule that year 49 is Shemitah, no plowing or planting. Year 50 is Ovil, no plowing or planting. That's a lot of no plowing or planting consecutively. We'll get to that a little bit later. Parshish Bahar continues to describe the requirement to keep track of these 50-year cycles, plus the fact that every 50th year is a freedom year, it's a freedom year, Duror, in that a chauffeur is blasted on Yom Kippur of that year, in the 50th year, and ancestral lands are returned to their original owners, and Jewish slaves are freed, and they return to their ancestral lands and families. The Torah mentions the general obligation to a seller to not overcharge at this point in the story, right? All the laws of Shemitah Yom that we just said, and then right there is where the Torah says, hey, a seller cannot overcharge, a buyer is not allowed to underpay. Seemingly, this sentence is referring to commodities and not to real estate. So it's a major shift in the storyline to go from the land laws of Shemitah and Yovel. By the way, in the same paragraph right after, no overcharging or underpaying, there can be no abuse 
in commerce. The Torah then mentions the rule that when selling ancestral lands, we have to calculate their years remaining of the 50 years in order to arrive at the appropriate sale price. So basically, Shemitah and Yovel, no abuse in commerce, back to Shemitah and Yovel. Very weird in the ordering of the sentences. Then the Torah seems to conclude this entire discussion with a general prohibition to not abuse a fellow, which by the way, means with words. You cannot make fun of a fellow Jew. You cannot be verbally abusive. You cannot remind the person of their you know, sordid past. All of that is part of verbal abuse in the Torah, which is also very out of place in this entire section. And right then the Torah says, by the way, you keep all these laws, there's a guarantee that the Jewish people will dwell in the land of Israel for posterity. So there's a hodgepodge going on over here that needs to be understood. But then the Torah goes back and says that the land of Israel will produce its produce, provide its produce, and that the people will live on this land securely, meaning like comfortably. And then the Torah says, what if people say, hey, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? Behold, we have not planted and we cannot gather our produce, which of course is even more of a problem in the Jubilee year, as we just mentioned. The Torah then promises that Hashem will instruct his blessing so that there will be food in the seventh and eighth years to last until the harvesting and gathering of new crops. So now we go with four questions and then we'll get to our answer. Number one, why indeed are the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, the sabbatical years, part of the book of Ayikra? What does it have to do with the book of Leviticus, which is generally understood as the rules relating to the Kohanim and the Leviim? Most of these rules are general rules of Jewish economics in the land of Israel, as we have outlined. Seemingly a more fitting place for this entire discussion would be the book of Devarim, where the Torah speaks primarily of the land of Israel and its laws. So why is it here in the book of Leviticus? Number two, why does the Torah interject the general laws of overcharging or underpaying in the middle of the Shemitah laws, which we sort of just mentioned? Number three, why are most of our rules of economics, such as not charging interest to a fellow Jew, or helping prevent another Jew's economic failure, or Jewish and non-Jewish slaves, or rules of overcharging or underpaying described in connection with Shemitah and Yovel. These actually seem to be very different laws, right? One is you have to let your land rest, okay? Yeah, we understand you have to make a general calculation if you're selling this land because it goes free in the 50th year, but that all these rules of economics are lumped together with the rules of Shemitah and Yovel needs to be understood. And finally, number four, what is, this is a question that's always fascinated me, what is the long-term permanent plan for a Torah-based economy for Jews in the land of Israel? Now, I'm not asking the famous question about all the Jews that are not working for a living. That's not what I'm asking. I'm just asking, assuming that Jews do work for a living, but no Jew is allowed to sell ancestral land, how many generations can that possibly go on for? How many times can that land be split and then split again and then split again and then split again, even just to having children? How does it work? So what is the long-term permanent plan for a Torah-based economy for Jews in the land of Israel? And how can this concept of ancestral lands last for hundreds of generations? So here's point number one, which will hopefully help us to delve into this entire subject, which explains the ordering of the Parsha, parsha to a large extent. Here's the principle. There can be zero economic security and abundance without a God concept. It cannot work. It just simply cannot work. In order for there to be 
enough and more than enough for people at all times, there must be a connection between this physical world and the supernatural, miraculous God. We're going to explain that more. In addition to the fact that there has to be a connection between our physical realm and God so that we are getting blessing from God, is the fact that we human beings must take responsibility to establish this relationship of our financial system with Hashem. And so part and parcel of tying our financial relationship with Hashem is not only in letting the land rest and making sure that we're spending time in that seventh year acknowledging the truth of Hashem being the source of our existence. And as Rambam says, spending time for study, etc. It's not only about that. It's we also have to take financial responsibility for our fellow Jews, which unbelievably, just so you know, includes resident alien non-Jews that have committed to refrain from idolatry. So in other words, this that the Torah says that we have to prevent the economic failure of our brethren in the land of Israel applies also to those non-Jews that live in the land of Israel that have agreed to refrain from idolatry. If they're part of our economic society, we have fiscal responsibility, not only to ourselves, but to others. I know that sounds like a lot, but yes, this is all part of healthy capitalism. So the Torah is saying that our financial freedom, meaning this that God gives us enough plus abundance, is specifically tied into responsibility for ourselves. We have to work, we have to trade, we have to do business, we have to take responsibility for the land producing. Plus, we have to have reasonable limits within those economics, as we'll discuss more at the end, very interesting specifics, right? And that includes fair business practices called do not overpay and undercharge, overcharge and underpay. Do not overcharge and underpay. That's not allowed. That's considered an abuse of our friend. And in addition to that, part of taking that responsibility is to not verbally abuse Jews at any time. We're not, we're not allowed to mistreat our fellow human beings and how we treat them because that very, very easily borders on financial domination. The minute that it becomes acceptable to think of another fellow Jew as less than, so then I can be entitled to overcharging or underpaying. I'm entitled to that because, hey, they're less than. So included in the same paragraph in the Torah that says, you must let your land rest. Every 50 years, the land needs to go back to its original owners. Plus, you need to always calculate those years when you make these sales of ancestral lands do not abuse each other economically or verbally, because that's the only way to be assured of financial freedom. And that's why the Torah then says, if you do all of that, then the Jewish people will dwell for posterity in the land of Israel. But let me share with you a very important example of these concepts in our regular davening. It's a sentence that I believe most of us are familiar and we say it in Ashrei. So for some of us, that's three times a day. In addition to that, some people add it into their Shimona Esrei when they are davening for sustenance, Parnasa. The Torah says, open your hands, meaning this is 
King David writing in Psalms in the paragraph of Ashrei, you Hashem, you open your hands and you satisfy all living beings, Ratzon, with will. Now I have a few very, I think, important explanations of the sentence, but the main one that I wanna share with you today is that what does it mean that God satisfies every living being with their desires? It seems that many of us don't really have either that house on the beach, despite uh, somebody's background right now showing an ocean. Um, I don't know if they're on the beach or not, but many of us don't have everything that we want in lives, whether it's the dream house or the dream assets, whatever it might be. So what does the Torah mean? And we say this every day. Not only do we say it every day, but in Ashrei specifically, we are taught that if we don't concentrate when we say the sentence, we need to say it again. The only other sentence like that in all of prayer is the first sentence of Shema. So clearly this is a very fundamental sentence. So my answer is that the word Ratzon needs to be reevaluated and reimagined. When the Torah tells us that God gives us everything we want, what the Torah is really saying is if we really want something, it means to really take responsibility for that thing. So a great example is people might really, 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 really want a child, but never, ever, ever want to change the diapers or pay for tuition. Yeah, that's not called really wanting because part of getting is take responsibility for what you have. So what the Torah is really advocating is that economic freedom or so to speak, God giving you what you want comes along with tremendous responsibility for getting what you want. And that's not easy. And this is something that people with great wealth often struggle with is how to responsibly use their money. It's a tremendous responsibility, right? That's part of Ratzon. You really want means you really take responsibility. Then God opens. So this is what the Torah is telling us here in our parsha as well. If we fully undertake the responsibility of working and earning and helping our fellow Jews and take responsibility for the economic and fiscal well-being of our entire society, and we attach the overall importance of God to the equation by letting the land rest and not working the land, demonstrating everything that we know, which is the truth that God is the one who really provides, then we can have financial security for the long term. The Torah's language is, you dwell securely for posterity upon it. And so therefore, the fact that the Torah divides the topic of Shemitah and Yovel in two parts works like this. First comes the commitment. The commitment is keep Shemitah, keep Yovel, keep the appropriate laws of economics in that you are definitely not going to abuse your fellow Jew whether it's overcharging or underpaying or verbal abuse. Keep all of that, you get financial security. But then the Torah says, wait a second, but, but how does it really work? Because we are not going to plant or harvest in this seventh year. And then if it backs up to the Yovel year, two years in a row, to which the Torah says, guess what? I will give you my blessing and there will be more than enough. You will have plenty for everything that you need. That's the second part of the message of Shemitah and Yovel. It does depend 
on blessing, to really attach the land to Hashem, to really state practically that our physical well-being and financial security depends directly on our attachment to a God concept is our responsibility and commitment both to Shemitah and Yovel and to observing the proper laws of economics of not abusing our fellow Jews. If we do that, then the reason that everything works is because we do get special blessing from God. And that's really the answer to the long-term economic plan for the Jewish people in the land of Israel. The idea that we don't sell ancestral lands except when necessary is essentially to teach us that critically important to every economy is that a person should have a place to live, a home, and a field to cultivate. That's the essential ingredient that every person has to have access to. A place to live, a shelter, and a way to earn money. That's absolutely critical. And so the concept of not selling the ancestral lands is to provide for that as much as possible, for as long as possible. But when the hundreds of generations pass, we are going to definitely need miraculous solutions from Hashem. So if the Jewish people would have been successful, right, and not been exiled from the land of Israel, which specifically comes as our parshas, this week's parshas, you know, parshas Bahar that we're discussing, plus parshas Bichokosai, which is also this week's, teaches us we specifically get exiled because we don't keep Shemitah and Yovel. That's exactly why, because our financial security is dependent on attaching it to Hashem. And so therefore, the Torah ultimately must be saying that if we don't fail and we keep Shemitah and Yovel properly and we keep the laws of business properly, God will provide a different miraculous solution, just like two years in a row of not having land to cultivate and produce grain and food that we need to eat. And so therefore, the long-term solution is a miracle. Yep, that's what it is. Some people call it Mashiach. Another way to call it is the opening paragraph in Parashat Bichukosa, because the opening paragraph in Parashat Bichukosa teaches us of the utopia of the future. Some of the utopia of the future blessings that are mentioned at the beginning of Parashat Bichukosa include food will never rot. Not only will food never rot, it will only get better over time. You're going to prefer to eat the older food than the younger food because it's actually going to be more delicious. Just like the parable that we have today for that is wine. Very often, wine is much better over time rather than earlier. That's one of the blessings mentioned by Shadduch According to Nachmanides, another mention of the miraculous utopian blessings of the future is that there will be no evil animals. Animals will absolutely no longer have that murderous nature. The Yishpati Chayavra Amin Haaretz doesn't mean that God is going to get rid of all the animals. It means that there will be no evil in all the animals, which of course the sentences in Yeshaya speak about how a child is able to put its hand into the mouth of the viper, and the sheep will lie down with the lion, etc. All of that is part of the miraculous future. Yeah, that's right. Long-term Shemitah and Yovel leads to a utopian, miraculous existence in the future. And so therefore, what we really need to recognize even today, outside the land of Israel, is that these principles are still true. Our healthy capitalism depends completely on our attachment to Hashem, and a selfless commitment to each other. Well, in a nutshell, that's what's missing.
right? We just don't have that in the world today. And so therefore everybody is spending for themselves. Money does make the world go round because at the end of the day, everybody's worried, are they gonna have enough? And everybody tries to live by grabbing as much money and power as possible in order to ensure their own personal financial security. And that's why we need to learn about our economy in the book of Ayikra. The book of Ayikra is about attaching ourselves to Hashem. It's our service to Hashem book. It's making Hashem a focal point of our existence, about building, having, I should say, a sanctuary in our midst where we have daily offerings representing us as a people. And whenever we need repair, we come and fix ourselves with the help of the Kohanim through our service to Hashem. Yeah, our economy depends on us having that relationship with God. Now, some just other interesting points about the economy that I just wanted to share in terms of laws, just uh, so we have it. Uh, this is from Maimonides, and then we'll get to questions and comments. I'll do a little recap after this, and then we'll get to questions and comments. It is forbidden for a seller or a purchaser to take unfair advantage of a friend, a colleague, as it says in our parsha, that you may not take advantage of your brother, okay? Even though such a person transgresses a negative commandment, there is no punishment of lashes because the funds can always be returned. Easy fix, return the money that was overcharged or underpaid. By the way, these rules apply whether it was intentional deception or accidental. Continuing, Maimonides says that if a person buys and sells in a faithful manner, meaning that they are upfront, they say, this is what I paid, this is what I'm charging, then it's enter that transaction at your own risk and the transaction is final. However, this is the important part. Even though that's true, that we can have, so to speak, a gentleman's agreement that whatever I charge is final, whether that's overcharge or underpay, as long as we speak it out, nevertheless, the court is obligated to regulate prices and appoint officers of the law so that people at large will not be able to reap whatever profit they desire. So there needs to be transparency in the general, in the general uh, economy so that people know what is happening in terms of uh, what you know, things should cost. Okay, that's a very important rule. Uh, also, all of this applies to the general basic commodities. When it comes to specialty items, like frankincense, perfumes, and other sort of luxury items, people can charge or pay whatever they want. Very interesting law. Also, as we mentioned, these laws do not apply to real estate, which is how we rule today, even though um, it's spoken about if you're really allowed to or not really allowed to, but generally speaking, real estate has as little or as much value as it is given. Now, just interesting part of the reason for that is because real estate is much more about a forever long-term sale. And just take a look at the prices of land next to you and what's happened over the last five or 10, 20 or 30 years. You could see why it's actually an incredibly difficult thing to quantify the real value of quote unquote real property, what we call real estate. Okay, so those are some very interesting uh, rules. I'll try to uh, post them in the transcript. But in a nutshell, it's very important that we recognize that the laws of economy and 
financial security are absolutely spoken about in the Torah. And the basic conditions or preconditions for being able to attain this long-term financial security is by connecting the financial world with Hashem, specifically as we do in the laws of Shemitah and Yopel. And even today, we can learn from there certain uh, very specific things, such as it does make sense to take time away from the daily grind of work and dedicate time for Torah study, time for spiritual pursuits, uh, at least once every seven years in a significant way. It actually makes sense to do that. We're not obligated the way that we are obligated when we live in the land of Israel and have all of these rules firmly in place, but the concepts certainly hold true. In addition, a person should do everything in their power to make sure that they always have some place to live and meaning a place of permanence that they own and some field to cultivate, i.e. some way of earning money, and that we should make sure to have an eye of providing that to our fellow Jews so that we can really live responsibly in an economy where people are actually thinking about not only what's good for them, but good for other people as well. And that itself is part of what leads to Hashem's blessing to provide for long-term financial security and stability. Questions or comments? Thanks, Akiva. See you next week. Thank you. Yes, see you. Rabbi, um, I don't know if this is um, relative and I'm just kind of thinking about it. We have, we're learning about our obligations to the land and to the rest and a person has to have a home and a place and some way to sustain themselves economically. And I'm trying to understand how the Torah community, uh, when they take the, you know, especially in Israel, because I'm speaking about Israel now, you know, we're learning about the land um, when a segment of the society um, dedicates themselves exclusively to learning um, for a long-term period, how that all works into the understanding of what Torah wants from us and the land. Uh, I'm trying to put those ideas together. Excellent question. Uh, The simple beginning to your answer to your question, which definitely needs a lot more discussion in general, is that we've always had a segment of our society that was dedicated to service to God, which included teaching um, all the rest of society. So the Torah speaks in several places about going to the Kohen, uh, the Levi, or the judge that are in your days, and gaining instruction from them. And those people uh, historically were supported by other people's work, such as the 10% that was given to the Levi on a regular basis. And the Kohen had other percentages given to him and other gifts given to him. So just from a very broad brushstroke point of view, uh, the idea that we need a segment of society of Jews to be experts, to be able to know the law, and to teach the law, the philosophy to other Jews is a reason that some people feel that, you know, there's a group like that that needs to be supported. And I agree with that, by the way, 100%. The question is to be defined because it can't be everybody that they don't versus and and people who aren't capable of being I'm not going to judge, but I think the rabbinic community understands who the best and the brightest will be to be the, those people in the next generation. So I, I'm trying to understand how we reconcile all that. 
Yeah, it's uh, definitely those are, are, are very uh, difficult issues to unpack. Um, for example, is there a rabbinic society? If there is, how do they get defined? Um, second of all, you know, who makes those decisions? Are there people following rabbinic authorities in addition to, are there rabbinic authorities? Uh, what are the necessary, so to speak, requirements of determination? Uh, for example, what level of expertise do we have to suppose somebody will be able to achieve? Um, what if somebody tries and they're not succeeding? How do you know when they're not succeeding? Should somebody not try? For how long should somebody try? All of these things are part of the, the difficult areas to unpack. Rabbi, I hear you. I guess for me, I'm just trying to understand how we get to make our, our holy land a place that is balanced and that we are following Torah laws according to what we learn so that we are blessed. Okay, so the, the, the short answer to your question is if one of us would just pay attention to what we need to fix, right, we would get there a lot faster. And it's very hard to fix what everybody else needs to fix, especially because we have so much work to do on ourselves. 100%. Thank you. Yeah, that's unfortunately the short answer. Not enough of an answer, without a doubt. Any, yes, question in the room? Oh, so uh, the question that's being asked is, do we have a restriction nowadays on selling land, either in the land of Israel or anyway? No, we're allowed to sell because we're not dealing with ancestrally owned lands today, meaning we don't have land that we know we inherited from the land of Israel that would still be applicable today. But what I think I'm saying, I'm trying to say that does apply today is that we should do our best to make sure that we do have a shelter and um, an area or an asset that would help us to earn money. We definitely should try because that's the overall um, effect of having ancestral lands that can't be sold. But don't people do that now? I mean, why do you have to tell people that? Oh, some people, some, people, uh, some people don't necessarily think that they have to, let's say, either own a home or have a permanent um, idea of or ability to earn. Some people don't think that. What do they, how do they live? Oh, people live, you know, month to month. People live in rentals. People live on other people's charities. You literally have to own a, I mean, we don't know. Ideally. Own yeah, well, ideally. Ideally, a person should have. Ideally, a person should have, yes. Really, like the, the Torah says to own a home? It, I'm saying it's an application. I wouldn't say that it's a halacha. I'm saying I think an appropriate application of these principles that the Torah is teaching us in general that would be one, but also to ensure that other people, that people really need that kind of security. It, it's, it's a big issue when people go through life without that kind of security sometimes. Maybe by not owning your home, you're saving money towards Right, that could be that if a person is, is not owning and they're saving to own, that could, that could definitely be an approach. Uh, and again, I wanna be clear, I'm not saying that as a halacha or that's a mandate, but I do think it's something to really ponder as a, as a possible application if we can. Yes. Can you talk about this? One more question in the room. Yes. You're talking about verbal abuse, which is like rampant in our society today. Is that the kind of abuse you're talking about? Yeah, so the question that's being asked is what do we mean by verbal abuse? So classic examples are making fun of someone for any reason, such as for a history of which they are not proud. 
reminding someone of the way they used to be as a way of making them feel bad and putting them down. Yes, we're talking about that kind of verbal abuse. What other kinds of verbal abuse? Yeah, any form of belittling someone would be an extension of that kind of verbal abuse. And that's not allowed. And, and the, the, so to speak, Kiddush that I'm suggesting is that it's not only that that's not allowed, you know, there's a, a rule of another uh, of being appropriate with our fellow Jews, but it's also easily leads to taking economic advantage of someone and trying to gain um, an upper hand and how to, you know, put them down and, you know, mistreat them financially as well. And, and that's a real problem. It's one of the reasons the Torah goes go out of its way so many times about not taking advantage of an orphan or a widow because that is so common. People really do take not only theoretical advantage, you know, in words, but actually practical um, advantage by abusing them. And, and part of the formula for financial success is to be on the opposite end of that spectrum, but actually to take responsibility for people who need help. We're talking about all kinds of financial of verbal abuse. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't apply to husband and wife as well. I think that's a general rule in the Torah. There's also other sentences in the Torah, um, but I think that would apply to husband and wife as well. Yes, uh, Frida. One, if I might ask one more question. Uh, in the laws of interest, are there any, ex you, you mentioned one except, exception, and I'm just curious, uh, in terms of helping other Jews, whether it's with a somebody approaches somebody and they have a financial investment and they want to borrow money, is that yeah. them from interest? Um, because it depends. I understand the difference between basic needs and um, entrepreneurship. So, uh, is that part of what we're learning? So we, we didn't talk about it today, but yes, there there is a whole category of what we call the heter iska which is a document that basically draws up that the arrangement of lending money is more about an investment than a straightforward loan. And when it's drawn up that way with certain actual financial uh, issues being considered, then it can be okay, yes. But it has to have that specific document and it has to be structured that way, which there are, there are certain specific terms of agreement. And they're in a specific document called the Heter, which means permission, iska, which is the Aramaic word of business. It's basically a permission of a way to do business. So a rabbi would have to create that so that- There are, there are, there are, there are forms. And yes, a person needs to go to a rabbi to make sure that their deal is in accordance in order to charge a fellow Jew with interest. Yes, Safra Bank apparently has that as part of their bylaws. I don't really know how it works, but supposedly that's part of their bylaws. Thank you. I didn't know that. Sure. Thank you. Many the heteriska concept exists formally for many, many hundreds of years. I don't really know the earliest uh, usage of it, but it's for many, many hundreds of years. And the real reason is because it is structured without some of the the station of a loan of interest normally adds. So there are limitations, there's risk of, of a loss of money, even though it's a but it's it's structured so that it's actually different than a loan. Even though it could seem a lot like a loan, it's actually different. More on that a different time.
so the question uh, so Megan one is asking, how do we practically make sure that we're trying to take and help responsibly other citizens that need help? Well, so there, there are many things that go into that. First of all, there are a lot of people that make themselves unavailable so that nobody can ever ask them for money, hmm. right? So we have to not make ourselves completely unavailable. Speak to your local rabbi about, you know, what's an appropriate balance of available and unavailable. Not so easy, but definitely um, to just check out is not okay. And by the way, this is common practice. Uh, it's one of the reasons that many Jews travel at certain times of the year so that they won't be bombarded. It's actually well, part of it. It's part of it. It's part of it. Yep. I'm not saying it's the whole thing, but it's part of it. So that's one thing. Another thing is be sensitive. Uh, understand a little bit about what's happening around you. Don't just walk into shul without taking any interest in your fellow man. It's not a good thing. People do that too. Pop in, pop out, you know, pop in a little bit late, pop out a little bit early so that you don't have interactions with other people. Also not such a great thing. You have to understand, you have to be paying attention to what other people need. Um, in addition, if you really do have a relationship with people, stay in touch with them and ask them casually how things are going and so that you can hopefully get some information. The literal description in our parsha is to strengthen them as they're faltering before they fall. How are you going to know if somebody is faltering and before they fall? It's only by being in real communication with them. It's always talking about money or it's talking about encouragement or, it's, or here it's talking about money? It, it, the question is, is it always talking about money? Or is it also talking about encouragement? It's definitely talking about money, but I would say that emotional um, encouragement is at least equally important the rabbis actually teach us that it's much bigger tzedakah to give someone uh, formal encouragement than to give them financial support. You're actually doing more mitzvahs by that. Actually. Now, of course, when a person needs money, emotional support is nice, but they need money, right? Um, so obviously that needs to be measured. So probably it does apply also to emotional support as well. All good? All right. This was a pleasure, everyone.